Hey, I'm Al Sparks. You're listening to OU Radio. That's right. Stick around. Okay. You still listening? Really? And welcome back to OU Radio. I'm Johnny McKeon with us in studio, Sasha Bloom. Joining us is Sarah Isaacson. Very big day. Got a special guest for you guys tonight. A repeat guest. Comedian Dwayne Perkins is going to be calling in in just a minute. One of the funniest men in the country, in my opinion. One of the funniest, one of the cleanest, one of the most talented, one of the most hardworking. I mean, he's been featured on Conan dozens of times. Just overall, just an amazing comedian. I'm very excited. got a Netflix special coming out. Yep, take note. That's kind of a huge deal for comics now. Like, Netflix is becoming what HBO used to be. Because it seems like HBO is segregating themselves to only the Gaffigans and the Seinfelds and those super A-plus stars. Yeah, and uh, the the biggest feature about Netflix is then it, it allows you to reach that worldwide audience. Yeah, the poor audience. Go yeah, international. Exactly. Sarah Isaacson, what up? Hi, all. So for all of you, Brittany Johnson, she won't be joining us very much at all. She just got promoted to being the weekend journalist at ABC4 Utah. Good for Utah. So she's busy. Very busy. Congratulations, Brittany. You will be missed, but... I, I I can't help but be happy for you. Yeah. And uh, Wayne Thompson Jr. is just uh, in Hollywood. so <laughs> Full-on diva mode. <laughs> they got that dumbass skiing up at Solitude. Good job, Solitude. I, that kid's going to tear up his ACL so quick. Uh, I hope not. I hope not. Oh, I do. <laughs> I'd love to see him in a big dumb cast hobbling down this, in this station. And be funny. You would. You would. <laughs> no one signs his cast because he's not famous enough. You know? He's having too much fun. He must get hurt. <laughs> <laughs> no, Wayne Thompson Jr.'s got big things coming up for 97.1 ZHT. They're doing some shape-shifting around at 97.1, and he's going to be a big part. It's very exciting. You know they're giving him a car, one of these dealerships around town? I believe it. It's a what? new car every month. What? And he's a horrible driver. Does he have to pay for the insurance? Yeah, how does that work? I don't know. That's I, what I'm curious Sure, about. he pays for his gas, and I bet he... And I bet he does have to, uh... What was that? What was that, Sasha? It's a ghost. You tried, you tried to play it off. <laughs> have you ever played a YouTube video properly? Like, no I got scared. scared. <laughs> I hear a ghost. Oh, uh, It wouldn't be all you radio without Sasha <laughs> pulling a bloom. Just got so caught up. Yeah. Oh, well. So, so Sarah Isaacson, you're going to be joining us, hopefully, yeah. most of the time when we record these things, yeah. until you find something and you get way too busy. So, thank you. <laughs> I think you guys are also way too busy, but you make it happen. Uh, some of us more than others. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Don't be bitter. <laughs> now, I'd like to take this moment to announce that I do not work for uh, Mix 105.1 anymore. They have uh, restructured. They've gone in a different direction, uh, as will I. I think it's a good thing for you, sir. You seemed very stressed out with that job. Yeah. It, it was a very stressful job. I mean, it had its perks, it had its rewards, but it also it, it came with a cost. I miss the free movies. <laughs> <laughs> Just use his... That's it. Yeah. I like having him home and writing with me. So what'd you learn? You They billed you as Johnny Promo. I thought that was a strange move. I, I think Johnny was good enough. Like, I don't think you need to edit, add the hack term in front of it. Uh, well, it. it was Johnny, you know, like, it was just Johnny promo. Johnny on the was, spot. Because I was the promotions director, you know. It, it sounded a lot more fun than Jonathan Promotions. 
Ew, so. uh, <laughs> or Jonathan Arthur, his middle name, by oh, the way. Right. You don't got to give out <gasps> my personal information. <laughs> why not just Johnny? Hey, this is Johnny. Just I'm here at uh, Strong Volkswagen. How you uh, doing? I don't know why. I don't know why I couldn't have just gone by Johnny. I don't. They, I mean, the day I showed up, they gave me that name, and it just kind of stuck. Isn't in advertising, don't they always want to condense it as small as possible? Like, here, you got Hooker. You got Meredith. You have AJ. You have Wayne. The syllables where you go Johnny McKeon or Johnny Promos, it's very long to get out. And, and the whole thing about radio, and especially at remotes, is the economy of words. So why add an extra word? I don't know. The hardest part was competing with the P. I had to hit the P really soft. Johnny Promo. Like, it was weird. Like I uh, Johnny Homo. <laughs> and where you hashtags wish. are concerned, you can just click, you know, yeah, search it's a long hashtag. hashtag it takes, and it's just him, though. It, on Twitter, it destroys you, though. Yeah, it yeah. does on Twitter. But on Instagram, you can find all the contests and... I don't know. Yeah, it does eat up a lot of space on uh, uh, when I tweet it out. But I, uh, I don't know. You can check out the hashtag Johnny Promo. You're able to see, you know, my adventures and misadventures, and it was fun. I enjoyed it. I wish nothing but you know the best for Mix 105.1 and Broadway Media. Um, Me too. John, Justin, Chantel—they're a fantastic group of people. I'm very excited for their morning show. Um, Lexi, sadly, she had to leave as well. She's now with uh, Alt 101.9. She's on weekends. And uh, Banks is now the program director in the morning show for The Eagle on 101.5. About three years ago, we had Lexi Papadopoulos come in studio, and I thought she was delightful. She is, yeah. I think I she's a that. very talented woman. I think that she could shine by herself. I'm not sure she needs a co-host. I think she's strong enough to do it herself. I don't know. But maybe we'll get her back in studio one time. Because I think the firing aspect of media is a very interesting phenomenon, because you don't see it a lot in the corporate world, but... For instance, there was a, Mandy got let go here at my 99.5 in Salt Lake City. And my thinking was, well, she's surrounded by music that a lot of people aren't going to listen to. And so you've immediately cut off her demographic. And then because of the music that she was playing, you can't have a whole lot of fun because those people that are obviously listening to that channel are probably uptight. So what do you do as a funny person? It's tough. I don't know. I, I, I've listened to that station. It, it's... It's a, a adult contemporary. Yes, yeah, yeah, and so it's it's the Biebers from three or four years ago, and the Miley Cyrus. Uh, not even Miley, she's too risque. Yeah, and it might not even be V. It's more like Timberlake, and and it's more of these weird women that sing with auto tune stuff. So it's a weird format. I'm not sure I get it. We've talked to Aaron Salazar on it about a year or two ago. Yep. Uh, great insight on what contemporary music is. So check that out. Definitely check out that episode. Um, yeah, with media. It's it's a it's a cruel mistress, you know. I mean, uh, uh, one one advice I can give is prepare for November. Yeah, <laughs> November. Yeah, November. Uh, it uh, it was tough, you know. Uh, that I showed up one day right before my big meeting that I do every Tuesday. You know, they pulled me into HR and they told me that it would be my last day with Broadway. And it it it, it it's just it's amazing how fast like it can just begin and and end. You know, like I, I was there just just shy of two years. And in the span of that, I mean, I've done more and learned more and I was able to experience and see so many different amazing things. So I, I can't help but, but feel grateful, you know, but deep down on a level, I, I do take it a bit personal, you know, when, when you get. You should. Yeah, I know. And uh, it, is, it is personal, but it's also. It's also a business decision. Yeah. It's also a budgetary issue. I mean, it's also, you know, a number on a spreadsheet. And so Mix is owned by a local Salt Lake company. They are a Salt Lake company. Yep. And their whole aim is 971ZHG, trying to beat them, yep. who's 
on iHeartRadio, the biggest media empire in the world, numbers-wise. Mm-hmm. It's almost putting you guys in an unfair situation because you guys can kill it as much as you want in Salt Lake. But if anything dips, they have a national corporation behind them yeah. who has ties to every major musician in the world. You guys went through that once where Wayne got this interview and you guys were supposed to get it. And they're like, oh, that's iHeart. We don't need anything else. Exactly. And it yeah. happens all the time. Yeah. Uh, that's why Cumulus struggles in a major way in this market. We don't so much have shows that compete against each other, but who are you going to spend your advertising money on? You're going to go iHeartRadio? Yeah. You're going to go with Cumulus, who uh, is mostly a sports show and kind of an alt-rock station. It's not, you know. I also feel like you're underselling the power of 97.1 just itself. It is a heritage station. It is. It's been here longer. I mean, Frankie's pretty much... I, Frankie's the greatest DJ I've ever met in person that I've actually heard. He's incredible. He is a force to be reckoned and with. And see, I would say that about AJ, who's their afternoon yeah, guy. That AJ as well. I didn't mean to <laughs> neglect AJ. Yeah. Like, yeah. I mean, that's a one two punch that's, that's, it's hard to beat, yeah. you know? And then, I mean, what, what's sad is that we, we at Broadway, our philosophy was that, well, we're local. We'll, we'll kill it local. And, and philosophically, myself and the company, we disagreed on certain promotions. I felt that we should have a larger street presence and that we should emphasize that. They didn't want to put the budget towards that, but you need to be able to remind people that radio is still an option. And the only way to do that is to be in front of people, face-to-face, creating interactions, letting people know. Because, I mean, we're competing with Spotify, YouTube, uh, Pandora. Pandora. Thank you. I always forget Pandora. Thank They're you. are from Utah. <laughs> I think the algorithm was created here. Yeah, iTunes. We're competing with all that. And the only way that you know radio still has a chance is physically reminding people that it's an option yeah you know it's free it doesn't use data it doesn't use you know wi-fi you don't need that you just need a radio and you can win stuff and you actually do win stuff trips a big part of my job was getting 40 prizes a week to give out on air 40 prizes that's a lot of stuff that people can go to a lot of local events yeah you could win six seven times a day up to six or seven times a day now to be fair i think there. Radio nationally local is not great music wise. Like, I listen to radio every day, but I don't listen to any local sport talk shows. I listen to a Washington, D.C. talk show, and I've listened to that for 15 years. I listen to what was Opie and Anthony, now mm-hmm. Jim Norton and Sam Roberts. I listen yep. to that before I go local because they can say something. Yeah. Here, you're going to talk about, oh, what's your favorite date? Like, what's the biggest fail you've done in your marriage? I don't want to hear that. Like, we lived through that. But local media and radio in general with the FCC, oh, the you FCC. can't be honest. And yep. It's a if difficult you, format to be. If you are an honest DJ, for instance, Hooker, they're going to give you shorter time segments so you don't offend every... The money. <laughs> yeah, every advertiser that comes along. That's one of the mysterious things about Rush Limbaugh's success is he's consistently lost... Uh, hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars of advertising money, but his audience is so big, they'll just sell one spot to some gun company or some pharmaceutical company will just, you know, they'll just say, well, we'll have three breaks an hour and we'll sell them to two people. Well, I think in this business economy, the idea of loss aversion is hurting companies more than, than like um, thinking that like being more concerned with what the advertisers think instead of your audience is where I think a lot of people are losing. Programming right and authenticity is most important to anything, and that's what lasts. That's the only thing that can last. Yeah, but if you want to have McDonald's come in and sponsor your station, 
And even if one of your co-hosts is a vegan and the other guy eats healthy and hikes all day, guess what? You're going to say, go have a Big Mac and follow it by an Egg McMuffin in the morning and and drink a Coca-Cola because McDonald's is paying you guys a car payment or they're paying uh, your kids tuition. And so you can't just, you have to let your authenticity go away and reinvent yourself into another form of authenticity. But the more and more you do that, at some point, you look in the mirror and you're completely full of shit. Well, see, that's the problem. Are you an advertise? Are you an entity for a, an authentic voice, a genuine piece of entertainment, or are you a walking billboard or advertisement? You have to walk that line. That's what yeah. When media or anything artistic marries corporate, there is a line, and you got to find yours. It's one of the great things about underground hip hop that really. Uh, hold on a second. We got Dwayne Perkins calling in. Yeah. Hello, sir. This is Sasha Bloom. How are you? Hey, how are you? This is uh, Dwayne Perkins. Oh, yeah, you're Johnny. the man. Yeah. yeah. Hey, Dwayne. Uh, it's me, Johnny. I'm here. Uh, also in studio is Sarah Isaacson. Sarah, say hi. Hi, Dwayne. Hey, how are you? Good. Uh, so, Dwayne, I'm very excited for you. You're coming to Salt Lake City for the 29th, the 30th, and the 31st at Wise Guys. You can also find Dwayne at Funny DP. So, Dwayne, I just saw recently that you have a, a new movie on Hulu called Dying to Kill. Yes, that's correct. Um, it's, um, I guess, the best way we we call it a comedy a horror, a comedy horror, nice. uh, yeah. not a spoof, like a movie that is both scary and funny. Uh, I think suspense comedy or thriller comedy might be a more accurate term, but we're very happy with it. It's um, very similar to uh, we describe it as misery meets the king of comedy. Oh yeah, <laughs> that sounds amazing. Yes, um, I play a, a stand-up comic who's sort of lost his way. And, um, you know, in terms of material, I'm in a rut, a bad, a bad rut that's been going on a long time. And um, a crazy fan uh, kidnaps me and tries to inspire me to be better. <laughs> <laughs> so tell me, how did this all get started? Like, where, where did you audition for this? I mean, did you help write it? What, what can yeah. you tell me? Um, yeah, yeah. Well, me and my, um, I have a writing partner who, um, uh, people always think he writes jokes, but he writes. We write screenplays together, and we try to develop TV shows together. His name is Koji Sakai. Um, I have a few people I collaborate with, but he's one that I, I tend to. We, we've been collaborating over the last ten years. We've written, I think, four or five features together. We've developed two or three TV shows together. Um, so we're always trying to hustle and, and get things going. And um, with this idea, we we wanted the, a movie that we could fund ourselves and um, that we could do on a really shoestring budget. And how you do that is um, you set it in one location, you know? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. we started out with that uh, the idea of one location, and then we kind of jotted out on, like, um, you know, maybe eight story ideas that we thought that, like, we thought could, uh, you know, serve that, that, that we thought we could tell in one location. And we sort of honed in on this one because it's a genre, and you know, and and uh, the, the horror genre has built-in fans. And because I'm a comic, we 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 knew that we could probably uh, we knew a lot about this world already. So um, that's how that came to be. We ended up raising more money than we initially thought. So um, oh. we had, had a little bit to play with, and that made the movie look better. We we were able to build a pretty nice set. Because when I wake up, basically I get kidnapped after a, a comedy show, and I wake up on a, 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 a some this crazy person has created a stage in wherever I am and I'm, I'm on stage and I'm chained to the stage with a mic. And, um, so it's, it's, you know, it's a metaphor as well for 
what it's like to be a stand-up comic. In creating um, your own movie and, I guess, getting the funds for yourself, did you have to worry about content or could you have freedom of content? Because a lot of uh, artists struggle, you know, with uh, content versus advertising. Right, right. You know, for us, because of the genre, I think it, it, you know, any, you know, the excuse, the genre of horror doesn't um, tend to be PG, mm-hmm. tends to be R, you know? Yeah. So I think we, we had a little leeway there. And also, the people who gave us money, because we, we ended up not raising all of the money. In fact, we not putting so much of our money in. We raised actually uh, quite a bit of money. So I think these people are people who are not studio people, people who like the idea and wanted to be in the movie business. So we got lucky this time around. We had a lot of leeway. But I've developed... TV shows from networks, and you tend to, um, you know, you have to get their buy-in every step along the way. We didn't have that in this world, in this process. We didn't have that. We were very lucky to just. It was really the collaborators, me, and the other two co-writers and the producers. We sort of just decided everything. That's amazing. So I always find it interesting that, like, I always see kind of a correlation between comedy and horror. You know, they both rely on a, a setups and scares and premise and surprise. So was it easy to kind of transition in, into merging both comedy and horror? Um, you know, it it was tough because, I mean, in terms of the beats, right? It, it's like I probably, even I'm not a, a huge horror movie fan in terms of watching them because I do get, I, I scare very easily. <laughs> mm-hmm. Even this movie scares me and I know what I was there, you know. So, <laughs> um, but I think um, for us, it was tough because we were, we were not doing a spoof and we kept toggling like, like we knew that we, we ran the risk of not being funny enough but also not being scary enough. So I think mm. Um, we wanted it to be scary, but at the same time, we were all more, I mean, except for, Koji's done quite a few um, horror movies. He's done his first, he had a movie called The uh, America's Number One Serial Killer, which was about an Asian serial killer. Um, he And he's done some other horror movies. Me and Ray, Ray Lai, the director, we're comedy people. So, uh, I think we just wanted to make sure it was funny, and scary. Like we, we, we weren't sure we were going to make it scary enough, which was our goal, but we knew that we would at least have some funny parts. But it's hard to go back and forth, even as me, as an actor, to, to have some real stakes and be terrified, and, but then in the next scene, try to be funny. It's tough, because basically I have to keep trying to make uh, my, my uh, person who's kidnapped me laugh, but it's coming after the person does some horrific things to me, so... Um, but that's also a metaphor for comedy. I mean, yeah. what you're going through, the crowd doesn't know what you're going through. You have to get up there and make them laugh, you know? Yeah. So crowdsourcing. So you were able to get the money to film it yourself. And when you sold it, um, did you see any major edits or did you get to keep it as is? No, we sold it as we, we did the edit too. So we, what we, editing and everything is basically what we did, what we wow. handed over. We were picture locked before we sold it, basically. Johnny and I have worked on a PBS documentary before, and we spent about 15 hours a day. And when it came to after, then that was just shooting it. When when it came to the writing of that documentary and then the video editing, we were spending another 15 to 18 hours a day. Was your time frame similar with this horror film? 
Um, you know, the thing is, I'm, you know, quite honestly, I wasn't super involved with the editing. Our director did, he did the assembly cut, and then he did another edit. So basically, he got it to a point, and we then hired a person to come in and sort of, a person who had more experience in the horror, horror editing, and they kind of did their little thing to it. So, um, me, you know, my role was, uh, acting and writing, so I have very little, I mean, I gave notes, but in terms of the hours, uh, I'm not sure, but I know the the hardest working person on the project had to be, especially in post production and pre, was Ray Lai, who's the co writer and director. Do you so, think people behind the camera and behind the editing screen get enough credit from the public? Uh, absolutely not, absolutely not. But you know the thing is, all that stuff I, I equate it to sports. You know, um, like coaches or referees even, there's certain jobs where if you're not seen, if you're not noticed, that means you're doing your job, you know? And I think, um, you know, you watch a movie like uh, Star Wars or something, and you just know that you're into it. You don't know why you're into it. You don't know the editing. You don't know that the score is the reason why. You know, unless you're watching as a filmmaker, but if you're just a person watching you just know you like it, and that's how it's supposed to be. So they definitely don't get enough credit from the public. Hopefully they get enough credit from, you know, other people in the business who realize how critical their their role is. Was there anything that stood out that you learned from making a feature film? Oh, my God, so many things I've learned. In terms of, I don't know if there's any one thing I would harp on, but I think that overall it's hard, right? It's super hard. I mean, I've done tons and tons of shorts, and I think when you do a short, you don't realize how forgiving the process is because, you know, everything can be a little lax, but with a movie, um, everything's got to be on point. So I think we were super serious and and super dedicated, but I I, I still think we learned a lot. I learned a lot from acting. I learned a lot about writing. And um, when we screened, uh, we screened our film at a festival in Philadelphia, um, you know, we were already picture lock, picture lock, but at that festival, I was like, oh, okay, we could have done this, we could have done that differently. I mean, I'm very happy with it still, but as a stand-up, I think I I don't appreciate how, like, I work my t- material but through repetition. I do it over and over again. But with the film, there's that one time, you know. I mean, you might have three takes, but in essence, you have the one crack at it. So, um, you know, I guess what I learned from that is, you know, as a, when I start directing, which I haven't yet, I would probably a director who, who auditioned, who um, practiced my actors a lot, you know, yeah. really had them practice. Um, and that, that's the thing. When we, when we first shot this, when we first had the idea, we were going to shoot it like a play. Like, we were literally going, going to shoot the whole movie in one take wow. from, from three different camera angles and then edit it together. That was sort of the point of... Um, that's how. That's another way you do a super a movie, super low budget. You do it in essence like a play. Mm-hmm. We, we ended up not doing that, uh, thankfully. <laughs> Sounds hard. <laughs> <laughs> but had we done that, we probably would have had to like be off book, and that would have meant like running the whole thing and blocking the whole thing. Yeah. I mean, a Herculean effort it would have it would have taken. So I'm glad we didn't do that. But if you think about your movie as a play, as an actor, and even as a director, you know, you don't just come in and, like, know that scene. You know, you have to know the whole entire movie 
even though, even though you're doing three scenes, you have to know how the scenes, you know, how you how you have to be collab, um, how you have to collaborate. Uh, excuse me, not collaborate. What's the word I'm looking for? Um, calibrate. How you have to calibrate your character. And I think basically, Ray did a great job of reminding me. Okay, something just happens here. This is where you need to be. You know, like making sure that it was consistent because when people are getting killed, and then you got to be funny, and then people are getting killed. You know, it can be drawing to the to the audience if it's not calibrated right. Does doing movies and TV and does that take away from your stand up in terms of the time that you're allowed to give to yourself to go into you know small open mics and all that stuff and just keeping yourself uh, sharp? You know, that's a great, great, great question, and it's one that I struggle with. I think that it, and I think in essence, it depends. It's it depends on. Um, on you, the, the performer. Like, I think it, it, it has the potential to take away, absolutely. But it also has the potential of making you more efficient. So I think I, I choose that. I choose to be more efficient. So meaning I have to be very deliberate about my stand-up. I have to, like, if I can't do five sets a week because I'm busy, then I have to take the two or three sets I do and record them and listen back, you know, um, make sure I take notes have to be deliberate on stage. I can't go to an open mic and do jokes I've done just to just to stroke my ego. I have to take the you know be willing to go and do all new jokes. So you know, I think for me it doesn't take away only because I'm super mindful of the process. But um, otherwise, it could it could definitely like things when things have less time, it's harder. But um, you can as long as you maximize the time it does have, you can leave yourself in a good position. You know. And uh, how did you choose to act out or play? Did you play it kind of loose or the character more like how you would be in that situation or, you know, acting techniques? What'd you rely on here? You guys have all the greatest questions. Um, well, you know, the director wanted, he, like, we were really worried about the swings of the character. And the director gave me an out. He's like, well, you could just play yourself, you know. Um, I didn't want to do that only because this character, he's, he's it's a fictional stand-up comic, and my comedy is in a completely different place than where his comedy was, so it wasn't my story necessarily. But I think how I played it was, and it's tough because with a horror, you want to be afraid, you want to be scared, you want to be terrorized and all of that. Um, but for me, I believe in acting, I, I think you have to know what you want in every scene and what you want from the other character, which made it tough because the person kidnapping me has a mask on. And so I don't really know this person. I don't have a relationship with them. So what I want from them is answers. And, and, um, and But then people come in the room, people that I'm friends with, my manager, my the girl who plays my wife, my, my wife's character comes in, and I can play with them. So I thought it's the director's job to make it scary, the writing's job to make the circumstance tense. It's my job to just relate to the person in front of me. And so, you know, as I went through every scene, I would, I would, I, I had my scene, my whole script in a notebook and a, a loose leaf pad, a, a folder. And I would just go over the scene and what do I want? What am I saying here? So I think you, uh, as an actor, you can like, um, you really put yourself in a bad position if you try to like be sad. You know, you can't be sad. You have to say, I want this person to apologize. And then, you know, if if you're like if if you're fighting for that, then maybe you're indignant in the scene. But it comes across. All you need to do is focus on the other person. I know it's a long answer, but that's how we. That's how I approached every scene, and I 
just had faith that it would all cut together nicely. How do you allow yourself to get out of your head and your own personality and delve into this caricature that you're playing? Um, that's a good point. I think I think I had enough in common with the character that it wasn't too bad. Like, um, he was married. I'm not. He had a child. I did. Um, but I think, um, yeah, I think, I think since we were we were close enough where it wasn't too much of a leap. I think he was a little less proactive than I would be, but but that's why he found himself in that position to begin with. That's why his comedy had faltered. You know, he was a little more, um, had a little more self-pity than I do as a person, but I, I don't know, I just, I understood it, even though I didn't agree with it, I understood it, so it wasn't too hard to to let him have that and not judge him because of that, you know? So so this premiered on Hulu December 13th. How did Hulu get involved? Because I know you've worked with Netflix in the past, and we're going to get into that in just a second, but why why did this end up at Hulu? Um, the distributor that we used which is the same just person, uh, same company that, that distributed my special, my own comedy special, Dwayne Persons Take Note. They got involved and, um, you know, they it was their job to sell it and um, they struck a deal with Hulu. They they have a pre-existing deal with Hulu and they, I think they um, chatted in on that deal they, or, or they struck a new deal with Hulu. You know, Netflix was our, probably our preference and I think that's still not, that's still a possibility actually, but, um, you know, for now it's Hulu, and we'll see where it, where it lands next. Um, so, yeah, just basically, you just whoever buys it is where where it goes. You know. So you just mentioned your uh, Netflix special, Take Note. It's fantastic, by the way. I uh, urge everyone to go check it out. Um, so, tell me, how did that come about? How did you get that special on Netflix? Thank you so much, by the way. Um, well, that that I did do crowdsourcing for in terms of I didn't raise. 100% of the money, but I did an Indiegogo campaign to raise some of the money. And then I worked with Koji, the same person I wrote um, Dying to Kill with, in terms of uh, he helped me secure a venue. And um, I thought it was just time. I thought that I needed to, I mean, we live in a DIY culture, so I needed to do a special and try to get it out there. And, um, you know, the fact that it ended up on Netflix is, is like, 100% where I wanted it to be. So I'm very, you know, my, my gratitude and my gratitude level is super high on that one. Really happy. It's like winning the Super Bowl in a sense that it ended up on Netflix. And how that happened was I shot it. Um, my director, Ian Harris, he's a comedian. He, he edited it for, for me. And then we um, went to New Wave, that's a distribution company, or, or Comedy Dynamics, and um, they helped us sell it to Netflix. You've developed quite an audience in Salt Lake City. It seems like you're here at Wise Guys twice a year. I don't know if it's more than that. Uh, do you go to every city and develop an audience? Is that the best thing for a comic, or do you just go, or is it best for a comic just to go city to city and open up themselves to new places? Well, I think you definitely want to hit back places you've been, and that's where you know you have to come back with uh, at least twenty percent new material. Um, it's tough because I'm in a place where on any given night there's like, you know, of the crowd, 20% of them may be familiar with all my jokes. And then 80% of them may be familiar with, um, you know, like 20% may know all my material. Another 30% may know none of my material. And then the other 15% may know half of my material. So 
I think when you're going back to a new play store, you have to reward the people that know your material with new material. And so I've been lucky to do that. Wise Guys has been great because they keep bringing me back and helping me build my audience. I think a lot of comedy clubs nowadays, they don't want to do the work, which is the difference between, say, like, I, I notice shows in England and other countries that are way behind different comedy, they do the work, meaning the the comedy club tries to brand itself. Like, if you come to this club, someone funny will be on stage. New York City is like that. There's only, there's, there are only a few places in the U.S. that are like that where the audience knows if they want to laugh, they just go to that club. And as a club, that's where you want to be, not to tell them how to do their job. But if you're relying on famous people every time, then that means every week has to be a special event. Um, but economically, super famous or household names, they take more money to get them there, right? So if they do anything short of selling out, you as a comedy club, you may not make money. If their fan base doesn't buy a lot of drinks, you may not make money. So I think um, a lot of comedy clubs have become super short-sighted, and wise guys, uh, you know, they'll, they'll bring in their like household names from time to time, but I think they do a good job of bringing in funny guys so that way their audience trusts that the club will have funny guys, but then also as a comedian, you can keep coming back and build your own audience of people that really, in particular, like you, you know? Do you get humbled when a comedy club owner says, I'd like you to perform on New Year's Eve? New Year's Eve is a huge show for comics around the country. Yeah, I do. You know, I, I, I've, taken it, I've taken it off the last... Well, I think I did last year, but I had taken a few years off prior to um, last year, and I think it's because um, it's like... You want to be working because, you know, you can tend to get a little bit more. You can ask for more higher pay. But at the same time, it's New Year's Eve, and I think you have to have that life balance where, you know, you yourself have a life, you know. So uh, I've taken it off, but I think coming there is great because um, it's a place where I have a fan base and I like all the comics. The other thing about about Salt Lake is I like the comedians there. I, I get along with them. They come to L.A. and we connect um, so it's it's a weird thing. I don't know if it's because my comedy skews kind of clean. I wouldn't call myself a clean comic, but because I skew kind of clean, maybe that helps things a bit. You've brought up some interesting so, points about how comedy clubs will brand themselves and some people and audiences know what to expect, so they'll go there. Um, say you're trying to build an audience somewhere in the Midwest. Um, what would you expect from a comedy club or what could they do to be better? Um, what can they do to be better? I think, I think comedy clubs have to, the one thing I would say, and I, you know, I, I'm, I don't like to really speak on other people's business, but I think that comedy club owners have to not have, they need to have comedians perform, you know? So like the fact that a person can maybe sell out at this point in time because of um, some notoriety that they have, if they're not a comedian per se, I think a comedy club does it itself a disservice because now you're putting someone who's not a comedian on because they can sell out that weekend, but that's short-sighted, right? Because um, the only people who are coming there are people who want to see that person. And and one, they may not be that entertained because that person may not have that much to say beyond whatever fame they currently have. And then two, um, yeah, you just, 
you're not building a, an audience that's going to come when that, when they're not there. So I think um, for me, comedy club owners, they have to have those weeks where they just bring in funny guys, you know, and and I don't know. I mean, maybe they need the big names at this point. Maybe it's um, you know, they have high rent. You know, who knows? But I think. I think they have to bring in funny guys and let the rest of it take care of itself. It's, you know, over time, it's like it's inelastic in the short term, but if you keep bringing in non-funny guys over time, it'll, it'll come, it'll hurt you. And also a lot of comedy clubs are getting too big where they're expanding and expanding. And, you know, the audience gets a sense that, you know what, this is just a restaurant really. And the comedy is secondary or it's third actually. So, I think you keep yourself at a good size and um, keep it about the product. That's the one thing I like about England. I haven't been there in a while, but in England, comedy clubs kind of fall under the umbrella of theater. So, you know, they have intermissions. They treat it like theater. Not They don't think it's a Broadway play or anything, but I think the respect level is higher. So you don't get the sense that you're really there to buy, buy chicken fingers. You get the sense that you're there to watch a show. And I think... Comedy clubs could, if, if a small change like not giving people their bills until after the show would let people know it's about the show. But when you give people their bills, and this, all clubs do this in the U.S., you give people their bill while the headliner's on stage, you know, you're really telling them, hey, this guy's like background noise almost. This is, it's all about your drinks and what you ate, you know? So I'm actually planning a trip to England in March. What were some of the rooms that you've worked there? Um, I've worked so many, uh, I think there's a comedy store, which is, um, you know, there's a comedy store in LA, but it's not connected. And then I've worked rooms all over, um, uh, Jonglers, there's a uh, live at Jonglers, uh, the Glee, the Glee clubs are really great. And then they just have like shows and various, you know, restaurants, theaters all over the place. So some of them are comedy clubs, some of them are not, but. The intermission is, is massive because, you know, people don't leave, people don't skip out on the bill, but they do go to the bathroom, they do have a smoke, and you don't lose momentum. Like, when I first went there, I thought, man, this intermission is going to kill the show. I wasn't used to it. And it doesn't kill the show. It's, like, perfect. Like, people, like, an hour and a half is the average length of a comedy show in the U.S., and it's a long time for people to sit still and pay attention. Like, it's not music. People have to pay rapt attention to comedy. And um, if they would, I know it'll never happen in the U.S., but if you gave them that 10-minute break, they can come back ready to, you know, refocus. So it's interesting. I've heard from other comedians that uh, uh, England is 10 years behind in comedy. Uh, would you agree with that, or what do you think? I said, I don't think that's as true as it was because of the Internet, and we all share the same information now, you know. Did you find that you had to adjust your comedy style from America to England, or were you able to just be yourself? Um, mainly be myself. It depends on the room, on the room though. Because think about England. When you say they're ten years behind, it kind of depends because they have like an alt scene. They have their own alt scene, which is different than our alt scene. What they what they call alternative comedy was like what we would call just regular comedy. So in that year, in that way, they were ten years behind. But I think um, in England, you have the rooms that are like sort of hip hip hooray where they just want to have a good time. And then you have the rooms where people are really listening. So you have to kind of know what room you're in. Um, I felt that 
the main adjustment was as an American not not apologizing but understanding that you had to earn their trust a bit because they they think we're very like uh, cheerleadery. They think we're like yay. So you have to sort of you know embrace that without like confirming it if that makes sense. So for me. Um, you, you know, you acknowledge that you're American. You acknowledge that we, we're like a little bit weird to them, at least. <laughs> After you do that, you can have fun. Do the audiences seem smarter? English um, people aren't well, smarter, bud. <laughs> they have a different. Well, type here's of the thing. Here's the thing. They they drink so much more than we do. So, um, they start out smarter. They may not end up smarter, though. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So you've had a lot of success internationally. Um, wh- and what other countries have you uh, done comedy in? Well, you know, I'm not even including uh, military shows, right? I'm only talking about performing for expats or for people who also speak English. I've done shows in, um, you know, Ireland, Norway, uh, the Netherlands. Um, uh, where else? Uh, you know, Hong Kong. Shanghai, uh, Thailand, Singapore, Malaysia, so South Africa. It's been good. Wow, that's amazing. That adds a whole new element to working the road. I, I can't imagine what that feels like. Do, do, is, is, is it more exciting to go international, or do you still like going coast to coast? Um, I, I, think, I, I think it's more exciting only because of the plane ride. I just like, most people don't, don't like long plane rides, but I do, and I I don't like that planes are trying to now have Wi-Fi. I look forward to that, like, 12 hours off the grid. I watch three or four movies. I listen to two albums in, in their entirety, you know. Um, and also, I like these cities and these places are really nice. So I love traveling within the U.S. too, so I like them both. But international is a bit more fun, I think. Um, yeah, I think it's a bit more fun, even though it's... Um, I guess because mainly I'm performing big cities too when I go internationally. So I'm a city guy. So you know, I like I'm a, I feel comfortable in a big city. Do the fans internationally? Do they stay off their phone during your sets? <laughs> I don't think it's any more or less than the U.S. I think um, I, I think they try to be discreet, but I'm, I've certainly seen people on their phones in Hong Kong in Shanghai. Um, I do think that the respect level is higher. They try to be discreet. I think it, I think it's new, and that's the thing because comedy is new in some of these places. It's up to the comedians and the clubs to train their audience, and I think um, we've done a bad job of training our audience because of the two drink minimum. Minimum because we drop sex. You know these things. These things tell the crowd what's important. Like it's more important for you to pay your bill while you're watching the thing. You know, like, if you go to a sports bar, they let you watch the game, and then you get your card back, you know? Yeah. I get I, like, I get confused with the whole thing because, like, I went to go watch uh, Kevin Hart when he was in Salt Lake City and it was an arena show, and they were throwing people out left and right for using their phone, and I actually, I walked out because I didn't like being controlled because I'm not going to take a video of you or Kevin Hart or whoever it may be, but I don't like being told what I can and can't do, especially when I view comedy as a beacon for freedom of speech. 
Yeah, that's a little weird. I think it's because he's probably working on his, his new hour and he doesn't want that footage to be leaked. But that's like, at that point, it's not like a comedy show either. It's like a, it's an event at that, at that level, you know? Yeah. So, yeah, I don't, I don't believe in kicking people out. When you ask me if people are on their phones, unless they take the call, you know, I, I notice and I'm not the type to call people out because I'm assuming, well, maybe they're babysitter texting them. You know, I give them a chance to deal with it discreetly. Um, kicking out thing is weird. I, I think that, um, I get it. I get what, what, from their perspective, they don't want that footage leaked. But um, I think it's tough in that scenario, too, because basically what you're telling your crowd is, you, I want to practice my hour special in arenas and then release my hour special. So it's like, you know, as a movie. And, I, you know, I think that's great if you can do that. But I think, to me, it's like, it's double-dipping in a sense. So... Um, I think I don't know I think it's hard to police an arena full of people but if you can definitely if you can then do it you know well what do you think about what happened with Hannibal Burris when he was his set was recorded talking about Bill Cosby and then you know the resulting investigation from that that came from someone recording his set what do you think about that yeah I think that's crazy I mean I don't I don't think he had anything to do with the person recording it so um, it's one of those things where maybe justice was served inadvertently, you know? I think, um, I think because you don't know who's recording, you have to realize that anything you say can end up on the internet. And that's just the reality we live in, you know? Um, so I don't think anything about it. I don't think he was wrong to do the joke. Um, I think I don't think the person the person may have been wrong to record it because I don't think they had his permission. But at the same time, if you tell if you tell two hundred people something, you know, then you have to realize you might be telling two million people something, and you have to be okay with that. So you you bring up the internet, and this is something I find interesting as a professional. How do you compete with you know the 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 volume of humor and comedy on the internet? Like, is that affecting your stand up comedy? Yes and no. You know, I do have a podcast um, called I have two actually Movie Night because I love movies, so I review movies with my with my co host T.K. Kelly, and we have a special guest. Uh, I have another podcast called Off the Top. Where I just talk for half an hour about whatever's on my mind, and I, I, I do a lyric of the day about hip hop. So, I mean, that's my way of competing is to definitely deliver a lot of content, but also that's why I did the movie, you know, because every, everyone can do a short, not everyone can do a movie, you know, everyone can review makeup or whatever it is they do, not everyone can do a movie. So, uh, hopefully, I, I can continue doing the things that not everyone can do, and that's how I set myself apart. Well, I'm super excited because I'm going to be at your show on the 30th. I bought my ticket. And you're going to also be here on the 29th, 30th, 31st of December. And you're funnier than most comics that come into town. And I'm so grateful that you've taken the time for to support our show. But just the amount of work ethic you've done for your life and your career. Because it really shows every time you come here, you're, you're funnier than you were the last time. And... I'm just a big fan of you, so thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. And, you know, Johnny, um, yeah, thank you for those uh, books you let me hold about writing. And 
I hope everything's going well with you, and, and it's it's it'll be great to see you guys. And thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Awesome. Thank you, Dwayne, for thank coming you. on. You can also find out more about Dwayne at DwaynePerkins.com. You can also follow him at FunnyDP. Dwayne, thank you for coming on the show. It's always a pleasure. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Take care. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And there's Dwayne Perkins. Awesome guy. Fantastic. I, I always enjoy talking to Dwayne. He's uh, one of my favorite people. I, I, I managed to sit and talk with him in person a couple times last time he was here for uh, Sundance, I believe. It was about two years ago. Mm-hmm. I... Uh, yeah, it's always a pleasure. I, I'm a big fan of Dwayne. Uh, I enjoy his work ethic. His, yeah, he's uh, a hustler. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. Can we name this episode uh, Driving in Cars While Podcasting? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Comics got to stop calling in on their while they're driving. It's an amazing gotta thing. Got to multitask. <laughs> <laughs> I'm waiting for the music. Like, I want music to be on in the background and people smoking cigarettes or weed like while the they're sounds. doing Just to keep it authentic, you know, on the 405 and such. So, big news with this network. Early in January, we're getting rid of the EarholeMedia.com platform. Yep. And uh, we're going to UtahPodcastNetwork.com. Uh, we're going to keep all the same shows that are on there now. We might add another one or two, but the website's going to be better. We're going to get more access to Utah. We're still keep the same national and international thing we have going, but uh, these guys need to make money. I need to sell it, and I think that a Utah Podcast Network will be more advertising-friendly. But uh, we will not go uncensored. I will not. I'd rather keep funding it myself than allowing a advertising agent to uh, censor us. So it kind of goes back to what we talked about. We're going to have to walk that line now. But I'm not. You can't. <laughs> <laughs> we got to just go after the people we want. Yeah, Big Buddha told me not to not stop cussing. So uh, that's true. In Buddha, I trust my good friends. In Buddha, we trust. Yes, <laughs> Sarah Isaacson. Where are you on Twitter, Instagram? Sarah Isaacson one. That's I S A A C S O N, not a double S like y'all are gonna spell it. And uh, your uh, Instagram? It's the same. Oh, unofficially Sarah. Yeah. I changed it. Unofficially nice. Sarah. No more Johnny promo. Johnny uh, McKeon, where are you on? Are you gonna still do social media? Or are you taking a break? I, I've kind of taken a break just from everything, just to kind of recalibrate, figure out what I want to do, who I want to be where I want to go. But you can always follow me at Johnny McKeon. That's M C K E O N. Um, thank you guys for all your support. I, I received a lot of support when I uh, announced my departure from Mix 105. When I would like to take a moment to thank everyone for that. Uh, it made a difficult time just that much better. But where's the cookies, y'all? <laughs> <laughs> Some special cookies? <laughs> On that note, we'll see you next year. La-di-da, la-di-da. I see trees of green. Red roses too I see them bloom For me and you And I think to myself What a wonderful world I see skies of blue Clouds of white, the bright blessed day.